Welcome to Voices of the Land, where we tell a rolling story of land conservation from all angles and perspectives. Here, we explore why the Westerly Land Trust's mission to conserve open space, revitalize culturally significant properties, and provide environmental programs is beneficial to the community and to the environment. Join us on this tremendous journey of wonderment and empathy towards the natural wonders of our world. Welcome everyone to Voices of the Land. So far, we've been able to talk to people who have very different career paths relating to land use. Now we're going to hear from two more guests about their scientific research, which is a new way to look at the land. Dr. Lisa Tewksbury is an entomologist who has been at the University of Rhode Island for 35 years. She is also an alumni of University of Rhode Island with a BS and a PhD from URI and an MS from the University of Delaware. She works with invasive species and utilizes biological control as a way to manage invasive species. Dr. Tewksbury is also the director of the Biological Control Lab at URI. So welcome to Voices of the Land. Thanks for being here. Thank you for the invitation. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself, how you got started as an entomologist, how you became a professor at URI? Sure. (laughs) Could be a long story, but I'll try and make (laughs) it not too long. So how I became an entomologist was really at URI. I wasn't someone who loved insects as a child. I did do an insect collection in seventh grade, um, in a seventh grade science class. But other than that, I really didn't have that much interest. But at URI, um, they had introductory classes that I knew I wanted to major in biology, and they just gradually led me through. Um, at the time, it was called, well, it was either natural resources or uh, something similar to that. And so they had an introduction to that. And then after taking that, I took an introduction to plant science, which included insects and plant diseases. And then I took an entomology class. And after that, I was hooked. And I went down to um, Delaware uh, for a job. And there I decided that I was getting paid about the same amount as a graduate student. And I wasn't meeting very many people. Um, And I thought maybe as a graduate student, I would, um, you know, enjoy, I'd come out of it with a degree and I would enjoy being part of the university a little bit more. So, so I got my master's and then I uh, came back to work at URI and uh, the job that was available for me here was um, surveying for invasive species. It's a USDA program that we still have today. It's called um, CAPS program, the Cooperative Agricultural Pest Survey. And so our Rhode Island DEM does that now and they survey for invasive species. That's awesome. I love that your interest came from a class at URI. I went to URI too. Before college, I did not like microbiology, but then I took a biology of algae course and I was hooked. I love algae. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I took a mycology class and I never thought so much about uh, mushrooms before that. <laughs> That's really cool. <laughs> so what is your favorite species to work with? Oh, I think it's beetles. With a lot of beetles since I've been here, um, you know the longhorn, uh, Asian longhorn beetle, emerald ash borer, the lily leaf beetle is one of our biological control projects. Uh, so be- it'll have to be beetles. In your own words, can you describe what a beetle is? Like I know there's a lot of general terms in taxonomy, like grasses, worms. So what is well, a beetle? So we know that um, you know animals and plants are kingdoms in the taxonomy jargon. The beetles are in order, so that's just another classification. And uh, sometimes, you know, uh, we'll talk about types of um, moss or butterflies or something, and that might be even, you know, further classified to families. But um, beetles are in order, and they're in order of insects where their front wings are modified to be um, kind of hard coverings to protect the um, softer hind wings and the abdomen. And so a lot of times, if you actually watch a beetle fly, they look like little tanks because they just kind of, you know, um, they're not a fast flyer, like a dragonfly or a butterfly or something like that, especially if it's a heavier beetle. And then many of them are predators and otherwise many um, sort of break down materials. You know, a lot of them are on the ground. So um, very important. And also, I always love beetles are make up about 22% of all identified species. 
It's amazing. So there's more beetles than any other insect and not even that any other animal or plant. Wow. And is that what draws you to them? Is that what makes them special to you? Or well, I guess it wouldn't even be special because they're so common. <laughs> yes. So I know that's what maybe makes it fun to talk about them, you know, because that surprises people, I think. But I think the reason that they're sort of my favorite is probably just in the course of my work. I've worked with them so much. And I understand all the different ways they uh, interact with us and the importance they have in you know, the ecosystem. So some are plant feeders, some are you know, detritivores, some are predators. They do a little bit of everything. Uh, the jewel beetles, which emerald ash borer is a jewel beetle, so it's uh, very brightly colored. It's iridescent. Those are really unique. So I, I think because they have some, come in so many different forms. And they have a lot of different purposes. That's great. Yeah. Great. Can you tell us a little bit about how you used Grills Preserve for your studies? Sure. Sure. So um, as part of our work with invasive species, um, we pay attention to, you know, new problems that might be coming our way. And one of them in 2015 was that southern pine beetle was found in Connecticut. And the southern pine beetle is actually a native insect to the United States but it's native more to uh, the southeast, and they have quite a problem with it. It's sort of an outbreaking. So being a native insect doesn't necessarily mean we're not going to have a problem with it. It's just a, a different situation. But so it has outbreaking populations. And in recent years, New Jersey had had quite a problem with it. And then in 2014, it moved north. And that is you know, considered to be because of warmer winters, because of climate change. And so um, 2014 was a big problem, the beginning of the problem with southern pine beetle in, on Long Island. And in 2015, they first found it causing a problem in Connecticut. And so we thought that we should start um, looking for it in Rhode Island. And so we started trapping for it. And in um, the south, it feeds on different pines that, that we don't have here. But the one that is its preferred host in our area is a pitch pine. And so we were looking for places that had pitch pine in Rhode Island. And so we were using some maps and doing some scouting ourselves. But really, there's a pretty big area of pitch pine in southern Rhode Island that kind of goes from like Westerly to um, South Kingstown and then kind of up through Charlestown into about the middle of the state. We worked with Rhode Island Department of Environmental Management Division of Forestry and they found a number of sites in northern Rhode Island. We found a number in southern Rhode Island. And I don't have the exact year. We started in 2015, but we didn't start in grills then. I think we started in either 2018 or 19, surveying in grills. Basically, if we weren't finding any and we were, because in the beginning we were just looking for pine at all, pitch pine and white pine, but white pine is not preferred. And so um, we've been focusing more on pitch pine sites, and that was, uh, that was why we chose grills. Have you found any yet? And yes. This year we found one. I know we didn't have any last year. And so in 2000, so 2020 was just one. 2019 was zero. And I think that, yeah, I don't have a specific location, but if we did do 2018, again, it was either zero or a small number. So it definitely isn't a problem in grills. And what we've been um, finding is we think in Rhode Island, we just have a low level population that's here, you know, existing, but isn't really outbreaking. And if I look at uh, the highest number we had was 2017 and 18, I guess in 2018, we went up to 90 found in the state and that's across the whole state. So that's 10, 10 different sites. Maybe it was even 12 different sites. We vary okay. between 10 and 12 or 13 uh, sites. And um, so, and we did have actually a Southern pine beetle expert. There's a, a scientist in New Hampshire. He's at Dartmouth College. Matt Ayers came to visit Rhode Island and he had sent before one of his students to do a um, drone flyover to uh, see if there was any damage to the tops of the trees with Southern pine beetle. It doesn't take very long for the trees to die. And, but, but before they do, they kind of turn red uh, instead of being green. And so they call them red tops. And so they were looking with the drone for red tops. And anyway, his assessment was that we basically have a local population, but it isn't outbreaking. And so it isn't killing very many trees. Of interest, though, is that our pitch pines were dying when we started this work from black turpentine beetle. 
and we found that out pretty quickly. Um, and the numbers, when we catch southern pine beetle in traps, we also catch the black turpentine beetle. And we've been watching those numbers gradually go down. So the trees that were already infested are dying, but the population is, is declining a little bit. But we are a bit concerned with the status of the pitch pines in Rhode Island. Yeah, so do you think this pine beetle is competing? It's like it's invasive, so is it competing with the other species? Well, it's, yeah, so it's invasive just in terms of um, part, you know, sections of the U.S., like from the south to the north. Now, normally I think of invasive like moving into the continent or moving into the country. The uh, black turpentine beetle is invasive as well. <laughs> so it's, it's competing invasive species. Um, and actually, there's another one. There's a red turpentine beetle. So, as I say, sometimes it's kind of like um, job security. <laughs> there's always something to look at. But but anyway, I, I don't know how much longer we'll continue to monitor this. I'm hoping to talk to, um, we've been giving our data to the U.S. Forest Service. And actually, there was a nice publication that came out in 2018 that talks about the northern movement of the southern pine beetle and you know how it's related to climate change and so it'll be interesting to see how it goes in the future yeah and how do you trap beetles there are people that re- you know that that's their job they figure out uh, how to trap a beetle and they go by what uh, pheromones are being produced which is a um, chemical produced by the insect either for mating purposes or sometimes it's also called aggregation they get together um, and that will help them find um, a host. So pines give off chemical cues, and then if beetles find the cues, then they give off more cues. And so gradually what ends up happening with the southern pine beetles is they build up in large numbers. And so even though the um, tree itself has a defense where its sap pushes the beetle out, um, if there's so many, it kind of overwhelms the um, defense of the tree. Mm-hmm. And so that's one of the ways that the southern pine beetle works. And so... Um, so they isolate what those various cues are and put them into a little piece of rubber or sometimes a plastic. It's called a lure. And the lure is placed on a trap. Our traps look like, I think we up to 12 funnels, 12 funnels all attached. And you hang them next to the tree and it mimics a tree, except instead of the insects going at the tree, since they smell the lure, they come to it and then they fall down into the funnels. And that takes them to the bottom where there's a little bit of um, collecting fluid that kills them. And that's what we collect every other week. We um, take that out. So these funnels are placed in early May and taken down about six weeks later. And that's the the flight of the first generation of southern pine beetles. Hmm. And so that's that's what we're looking for. That's amazing. That's amazing. All the, all the effort that goes into it. Yeah. And, and, it is. Uh, and so it seems like... So in your work, you are focused on the minutia. You're, you know, you're focused on first physically a small creature, obviously. But what is your your personal bigger picture of why you're doing this? Well, um, I think you know initially I assumed it would be to protect agriculture and protect you know our food. Um, I think as I moved away, a lot of the invasives tend to be more for natural areas. And some of my biocontrol projects are, are for natural areas too. So I think it's more to protect our natural areas, to protect our, you know, biodiversity and to, um, you know, to help manage invasives so that they don't, you know, cause problems with our, our native species. That, that those are probably the prime motivations. Excellent. Great. Also, the going back to the traps. So the pheromones, yes. those are beetle species specific. Right? So do you get a lot of uh, yes, bycatch? Yes and no. I mean, they work as much as possible to make them species-specific, but in this case, I would say they're uh, like family-specific. So uh, bark beetles, um, bark beetles are now in the same family uh, as weevils, uh, but they're uh, in a su- their own subfamily. So bark beetles, you know, bore under bark. Um, you know, the female lays an egg like in a little crevice, and then the larvae hatch and kind of bore under and the southern pine beetle you'll see all these galleries if you pull back the bark so that's really a subfamily so and so that's why we could find you know the um, black turpentine beetles red turpentine beetles a few other bark beetles and we've been keeping those and identifying those to the best of our ability because we think that 
since we're already, as you said, you know, making this effort to collect these insects, it seems a shame not to use the additional information that's being given to us. And so we've been, um, you know, keeping track of that. Yeah, all data is good data. What, what type of challenges do you encounter, big picture-wise? What are some of the biggest obstacles in your line of work? Well, biggest obstacles. Aside from I not see. catching the beetles, I guess. Which, I, I guess, actually, that could be a good thing, right? That <laughs> they're not there, but that's probably... Oh, right, right. That, yeah, that, that feels like a problem sometimes if you're having students looking for something. You don't want them to get bored, but right. really, you're right. That's a, that's a good thing is to not find them... Um, well, funding. Funding is always something we have to be concerned about. When I had my, um, I'm currently director of the biocontrol lab, and so I'm responsible for funding. But uh, before that, I worked for Dick Casagrande, and that was less my issue. So, so deciding what direction you're going in your research and, and how to fund it, that's obviously one component. Other than that, it's probably just working within a system of, you know, uh, we have the university, we have states like Rhode Island DEM we work with. I mean, I, I wouldn't really call it an obstacle, but it's a, it's a challenge to sort of utilize the various organizations within the state so that you're um, communicating on a problem like Southern Pine Beetle. And I would say in Rhode Island, we tend to do that fairly well. And so we've worked with many land trusts, we've worked with Audubon, we've worked with Rhode Island Natural History Survey and, and many groups. And so um, that's probably something to always be working on and also um, keeping communication lines open. We have more recently developed into um, social media. We've always had a website, but we also now have Instagram and Facebook and, and trying to keep up with that. And even when we have cooperators such as the Westerly Land Trust, um, just making sure we report back and things like that, um, because you do get kind of caught up in your day to day, you know, what you're trying to accomplish. So including community partners is, is pretty uh, important to us. We know how that goes. <laughs> What's that? We know how that goes. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> Funding too, a nonprofit. <laughs> yeah, that's right. But also it, it does, I mean, you spoke to collaborations. I think that's one of the things that is it may be seen by some as a hurdle, but obviously the outcomes are magnificent. And for, you know, for us to be able to share our land with somebody like you who can go out there and, and, you know, take advantage of the open space, that obviously is part of why we do what we do. So we're happy to Right. Oh, it's so, so critical to us. And I think that's the only reason it's a hurdle is just because it's a, um, uh, you know, a, a task, a commun- you know, communication. Right. Um, and like I said, it, it generally, in our case, has worked out really well. Good. Good. I'm going to go even bigger picture again. Why should people care about invasive species? Because it's, it's more of a newer phenomenon and because it can have long-lasting consequences. So, you know, some people talk about weeds, you know, in my yard, I may think that um, dandelions are, are pretty where someone else thinks they're, you know, a pest and wants to, uh, you know, bring in a lawn care service and take care of it. So what do you want to call it? Values or the value you place on things? You know, the first thing I learned when I was learning about weeds was, you know, weed is just a plant out of place. So <laughs> thank you. <laughs> so. So with invasives, I think that's what it is. They can come in, and if the situation that they're in, if it is either, you know, in the middle of the wilderness and nobody knows about it, then it's not affecting anybody. If it's in your yard and it's taking over, you know, your garden or something, you're going to consider it a problem and want to do something about it. And that's where in an area like a a land trust area, it's what was the intent of purchasing that land. And a lot of times it's to protect native species and native animals and to provide some open space for people to enjoy and recreation, various, you know. And so it really comes down to the landowners and the land managers and what their goals are. And many times invasive species um, go against those goals and mm-hmm. aims. And so that's why they generally need to be um, you know, paid attention to and some management developed for them. And that's what with the uh, southern pine beetle, so much has been done over so many years that there really are methods of managing and a lot of it comes down to managing the forests if they're, you know, not allowed to be too dense and there's some cutting that happens and things like that. And so, you know, you can do that for invasive species, help manage them. 
And so, Lisa, what advice do you have for people interested in becoming an entomologist or working with invasive species? I mean, obviously at a university like URI, and uh, it, it is a discipline that is sort of going away in some smaller universities or in some areas where agriculture isn't quite as important. You can certainly go to someplace out in the um, Midwest or down in Florida or in California where there's large entomology departments. But then I would say also get experience. You know, if you can get a job, uh, someone I know had gone to school for biology but hadn't realized that they were interested in entomology until when they were pretty much done and graduating. And so um, she came and volunteered in my lab at URI for a little while. And then she went and worked for the state of Connecticut working with bees. And, you know, she eventually decided, yes, this is what I want and went to graduate school. So take college classes if you can, but get experience if you can. And um, in terms of invasive species, there's also a lot of citizen science type projects that people can do if they're not in the point of their life, you know, of going to college. Um, there's, um, I'm trying to think. Um, what's currently going on. I keep trying to do them, but since I'm my work involves looking for insects all the time, doing it in my backyard for fun gets hard. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, like, even this isn't an invasive species, but this is sort of protecting native species. Um, they have Firefly Watch, where you can look for fireflies in your backyard and record them because they're afraid that fireflies are maybe you know, um, populations are dwindling and, um, and there's ladybug projects and monarch watch. And anyway, there's quite a few things like that. So you can certainly, even as a, um, amateur or an enthusiast get involved in things like that. And if somebody wanted to become a citizen scientist, where would you recommend they start their search? That's a really good question. (laughs) Um, um, well, if, if they did with a particular area, like I said, in Monarchs or whatever, they could probably just Google Monarch or Monarch Watch or Fireflies, Lightning Bugs. But I'm wondering if URI has a cooperative extension service, and I know they try to put a lot that's of interest to people there. We may have a few links on our website, but um, I don't know if we have too many. But certainly any of our projects, with our Lily Leaf Beetle Biocontrol Project, it, we we um, use citizen science for that, and we had a lot of um, interaction with people from Rhode Island and neighboring states. Great. Is there anything else that you wanted to talk about? No, I think I think we covered them. Do you want to plug your your lab, the website, Instagram? Oh, sure. Definitely. Sure. Um, so the website is um, you could just Google URI Biocontrol Lab, but it's um, web.uri.edu backslash biocontrol backslash and then the um, instagram is uri underscore biocontrol and the facebook is uri space biocontrol so <laughs> it's all pretty easy easy to find and yeah the instagram and the facebook are primarily put together by students who work with me you know some of it's educational some of it's just fun pictures of some of the insects that we work with yeah that's awesome yeah. great love it. great Well, thanks for being here, Lisa. Great talking to you. Thank you very much. I've enjoyed it. And Amy Mayer is a research associate at the University of Rhode Island. She got her master's degree in environmental science from URI in 2013 and studied habitat use of New England cottontails in Connecticut and Rhode Island. More recently, she has been working on a bobcat ecology project that is a collaboration between the Rhode Island Department of Environmental Management and the URI Department of Natural Resources Science. We caught Amy while she was outside doing fieldwork, and much like nature, the audio in this next segment is unpredictable between outdoor noises and technical issues. Amy still has extraordinary things to say, so keep listening to hear about Amy's research on bobcats. Welcome, Amy. Hi. Thanks Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. So you are actually out in the field right now. I am. So... I recently uh, joined another project here at URI um, where we're studying ecology of fishers. Um, so we actually caught two today that we were putting GPS collars on. So we just wrapped up the second the second capture. So I got stuck in the woods. How do you capture a fisher? So we uh, are using uh, live traps. So just, like uh, people are familiar with the have a heart trap that you would buy at a hardware store. It's just basically a kind of heavier duty version of that. Um, so we bait it with usually like chicken or something and we have it tucked into a 
into a log out in the woods where fishers might be. We've been doing um, trail camera surveys for a number of years, so we kind of know where we get most of our sightings. So we've been targeting those areas, and this is part of a, a PhD project for one of my colleagues. So I've, I've joined the project to help her out with the captures. So what kind of data are you hoping to collect from this study? So we're looking um, at their whole range and their movements and just general ecology. So in Rhode Island, um, we work a lot through the university. We work a lot with Rhode Island Department of Environmental Management, and they do a lot of good work, but they also don't have a huge staff. So um, a lot of times they'll work with um, different labs at the university to collect information on the species that the state is tasked with managing. Um, so uh, the Bobcat project that I worked on previously and the Fisher project are both in conjunction with Rhode Island DEM. So we're just trying to get some basic information um, because they are a species that is managed. Uh, so having know information on how many where they are and where they're moving is super important for keeping populations um, healthy so there we fit them with a gps collar that takes a bunch of points um, we expect the collars to stay on for maybe about a year they have a little um, piece of a lighter weight leather that we expect will stretch and eventually break off so we just started the fisher project uh, last month actually and today was capture number eight um, so we're, we're talking right along. We're starting to get those first bits of movement data on those guys. That's great. You're still to do research during a pandemic. I know it's uh, like research done for a lot of people. Yeah, it has been tough for us, especially at the beginning, you know, not knowing what was going on. But a lot of the times I'm out in the woods by myself. So this job is kind of perfectly suited for that sort of thing. So when I was wrapping up, Bobcat project and our, our big trail camera survey for that. You know, I'm out in the woods by myself. It didn't really matter. Um, starting a new project, this Fisher project, was a challenge because we had to work with a lot of different partners and agencies to get the permits and get all our paperwork in order. So everything moved a lot slower than um, than in the normal times, but we got it done, and we're all being safe. And you know, being outside is the best <laughs> the best way to operate during a pandemic. We've even seen that. We don't track bobcats, but we track people on the preserves, especially in the fall of 2020. And it's phenomenal that people are realizing these outlets for recreation, physical activity, mental health, relaxation, basically in their backyards. It really is. And I, I've noticed the same thing. You know, I've been doing, I've been working at the university for about six years now. So a lot of these sites that I go to, I'm there you know, consistently over the past six years and just this year, it's been amazing. Like, I have never seen another car parked here. I've never seen another person out in the woods. And, like, we're coming across a lot of people, which is good because we can share the work that we're doing as we come across people on hiking trails and stuff. So it's really, it's a hard time, but it's a really interesting time and a neat time to be doing what we're doing. Just by design, we try to keep, whether it's our trail cameras or our traps, we try to keep them away from hiking trails and places where they people would you know wander into them normally so we haven't really seen much of a difference so it'll be interesting to look at particularly the trail camera data because we have several years of it prior to the pandemic to see if there's any changes in like the uh, amounts of animals we're seeing and, and what spots we're seeing if they're being influenced by people being at some of these properties oh you you mentioned that you fit these fishers with gps collars so i want to know how do you do that? And are fishers as vicious as the reputation has them being? Uh, I'll answer the second question first. No. <laughs> uh, yeah. So that's one of the neat things and, and one of the big goals of this project for the PhD student. Her name is Lakin. She's really interested, obviously, in the fishers' biology, but also changing people's perspectives of them. They have a bad rap for I don't really know the reason. Uh, you know, there's those YouTube videos floating around and it's where it's just the black screen and you hear this like blood curdling sound yeah. and it's a it's a fisher. It's not a fisher, it's a gray fox or a red fox. The fishers that don't really make much of a noise at all. They make like a, we call it a chuckle, it's kind of like a little chirping noise. And everyone that we've encountered in our traps has been actually pretty docile. They, they're not like coming at us or anything, they're just kind of like, ah, I'm in a trap, what's happening? And then as soon as we let them go, they just take off. You know, they're not they're not vicious at all. 
so fitting on with the GPS collar, we bought them from a, a company. Um, it's just like, it, you know, kind of looks like a dog collar, it's a leather collar, but it's got an antenna built into it. It's got a, a battery pack on the front, and it transmits a radio signal so that we can go out and listen and repeat to see where they are, um, but it's also recording GPS points, you know, every half an hour or so, so that Lincoln and our field crew can go out and actually, if they get, are able to get within, you know, 500 feet of the animal, they can actually remotely download anything that the caller has saved, so we can kind of track them almost in real time, not quite, we get a download once a week, but it's really cool to see, like, oh, we just tracked this one last week, where has it been, and where they're going, and what they're doing, it's great. My husband used to do um, marine mammal rescue rehabilitation, so... I just, I always like to think of these animals as kind of the goodwill ambassadors towards the the rest of the population. It's like, you know, they have to wear a collar for a little bit or, yeah. you know, but the amount of valuable information that you guys can gain and, and then, you know, spread to the community and and uh, the rest of the, the research community as well is just amazing. So Yeah, absolutely. I've run into that um, people being a little concerned about what, you know, what exactly we're doing, and oh, are you hurting the animal? And I totally agree with you. It's, you know, it's, I'm not going to say it's 100% non-invasive. Obviously, we have to anesthetize the animal, and we have to, you know, do things like put it in a shear tag and, and draw a blood sample. So we're handling the animal, which causes stress, but the amount of information we're getting. When I started the Bobcat Project six years ago, Bobcats have never been studied in the state. We had no idea, like, where they are, where they're going. And it's the same thing with the Fisher Project now. This is the first time they've been studied in the state. And with fishers in particular, they're a species that you're allowed to trap. Um, hunters and trappers can get um, a permit and trap them and, you know, kill them, essentially, and use their fur. Uh, there's not a ton that do that, but it's something that happens. So knowing a lot about the population is really important so that we know we're, we're managing the population in a, in a sustainable way. Yeah. How did you get into bobcats? How did you decide that that was your your avenue? <laughs> you know, I I honestly kind of it was just the right time at the right place. I went to URI both for my undergrad and grad school. In between, I was doing environmental ed and an outreach with elementary school kids, which was super fun. But I really just wanted to get back into doing wildlife field work, so I came back for my master's. And I was actually studying cottontail rabbits, which was really interesting. Um, we learned a lot about us. Out pretty rare in the state. You think of eastern cottontails, they're everywhere, but I was studying New England cottontails, which are uh, conservation needs here in the state. And so when that project wrapped up, my advisor was talking with GM and they had interest in studying the bobcat population because we've been getting more and more sighting reports. And they're like, well, we're getting all these sighting reports, but we have no idea how many we have, where they are. So my advisor set up a project, and he actually wanted to get another grad student. I had already graduated at that point. I was like, no, 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 I'll do it. I'll do everything. I'll do all the project. And so I, you know, I pushed for that, and I was able to to get into that project and run it for several years. So it was really hard, a hard project. Podcasts are hard to keep track of and track. The data that we did collect, I mean, it was the first in the state, so I think that's pretty important. That is that's I was reading a couple articles about your work, and one of them mentioned, do you think that the bobcat population on Rhode Island is 50 to 100? Is that still true? I would say so. You know, so estimating a population is pretty pretty tricky business. So our initial idea was that we're going to trap them, we're going to get so many, and we'll be able to figure out how many there are, just like kind of based on a proportion of how many we were able to trap, and then looking at genetics genetic population, um, like I said, they were super hard to trap, so we kind of had to switch gears, and I got some good data on a couple that we collared, but we ended up switching gears to trail camera surveys, because we could cover so much more ground, I didn't have to be, you know, everywhere all of the time, we were able to get to a hundred different sites, and then just look at the number of photos that we got, and we still actually didn't get too many photos, I think we ended up with 40 of the 100 sites had a detection of a bobcat. So from that data, which is still crunching the numbers, we're working on a paper on that right now, um, but we can kind of kind of guess, like, oh, the detection is super low. We think they're still here in super, super low density. So we get a ton of sighting reports down, you know, in Westerly, Matunic area, 
But it's really interesting because you don't know if you're getting all these sightings reports because either more densely human populated areas are are there just more people there to see them, or is that actually true? And I think it's a, a combination of both. I think the population is probably increasing, but I think we still don't have a ton. I would put it safely somewhere between fifty and one hundred. Yeah, that was my next question. For and they are apex predators, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. So they don't really have any. Yeah, they don't have any predators here. It would just be we, we you know, you get roadkills every once in a while, and there's no trapping or hunting season on them in the state, so they're pretty protected in that way. So, is fifty to a hundred members in the population a big population for apex predators? Um, no. I mean, it's, I I would say it's pretty pretty common. Yeah, if you're if you're a predator, your their home ranges are huge too, and so that's one of the things we learned as we were looking at um, these males that we had collared. And this one male would go the whole width of the state was his was his whole range, um, and they are territorial. So just looking at that, you you know, Rhode Island's a small a small state, so we can only have so many of these predators at that one given time. Yeah, cool. Let's get another fifty then. Yeah, yeah, we're not seeing any indications that their populations are decreasing, and we still get sighting uh, reports pretty frequently, and we're still getting detections on our trail cameras pretty regularly, so I think they're doing all right. What are some fun other things that you've caught on your trail camera? Uh, so we've caught pretty much everything that lives in the state. Obviously, lots of fishers, <laughs> tons of coyotes and raccoons. It's always fun to see the changes of season because we have cameras out pretty much uh, year round. During the summer, I, I would see raccoon parties at the camera. Oh, so you'll get like a pack of like six or eight raccoons all kind of hanging out of your trail camera for ten minutes or so, um, climbing up the trees. So we use a scent lure, so some of the animals are super into the scent lure that we're using. So we, yeah, we've seen pretty much everything: fishers, raccoons, possums, goats, tons of deer, tons of squirrels. Yeah. Also, it's really it's really fun to kind of get a, a a secret view into what's going on in the woods. You know, if you're out there hiking around, you're just not going to see any animals. So it's really amazing to see what you can catch with the camera. Yeah. <laughs> Catching a raccoon rave. I know. <laughs> One thing I really want to know is how soft are bobcats? They look adorable. <laughs> they're pretty soft. I mean, they're pretty much just like a giant house cat. It's funny, like, you know, when we're trapping, we would have our trail camera sent to video so we can kind of really see how they're interacting with the trap. This is just, it's just a giant house cat. The, the things that we would use to lure them in, like, I would hang up in feathers with <laughs> tinfoil. Like, I would ask my, my colleague, Mary, who uh, she was helping me with the project, and I'm like, what did your cat like to play with? <laughs> like, all right, we'll make that, and we'll hang it from the tree. between bobcats, mountain lions, cougars, that kind of that kind of terminology. Yeah, so mountain lions and cougars, they're the same same critter with just different names. It depends on where you're living, I think. Bobcats are much smaller. Uh, around here they're gonna top down around thirty pounds for a male. Which doesn't sound that heavy. I know a lot of people have rather large pet cats. <laughs> um, but I promise when you see them out in the woods they look a lot bigger than, than their weight would show. They're pretty tall and leggy, so they often look a lot bigger, whereas mountain lions are like, you know, 100 pounds. So we don't have any mountain lions here in Rhode Island. A lot of people will send pictures to me or to me, and I'm like, oh, I have a mountain lion in my backyard. Um, most of the time, it's a bobcat. Um, the big difference is the, the tail. A bobcat has a short, short tail, a mountain lion will have a really long tail. But we just don't really have space or habitat for mountain lions. I, I always tell people it's not out of the realm of possibility that one would show up here. Because one showed up in Connecticut probably about 10 years ago. But I've had trail cameras. 
picture of a mountain lion, so he's definitely a bobcat, so. I think people will rest easily. Easier knowing that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. For it's funny time. though, people are, you know, some people are just convinced, and I think a lot of it is if you see something, you know, crossing the street or even in your yard that you're not expecting to see, kind of your mind just blows it up into something bigger because, like, oh my god, I wasn't expecting to see that. It's gotta be, it's gotta be a lion. <laughs> Do bobcats pose a threat to people's pets or people if they're hiking on a trail? I would say no. I wouldn't be worried about them. Uh, like I mentioned, they're pretty cryptic, and a lot of times people don't even know that they're there. They're pretty wary of people. But with any wildlife species, and this goes for coyotes or fox or fishers, um, if you have pets, keep them inside. Especially your cats. I know people feel bad keeping their cats indoors, but cats do so much damage to our wildlife, our bird and rodent populations, as much it's safer for them and it's safer for the wildlife. So I would just say, you know, keep an eye on your pets. If you have chickens or something like that, keep them fenced in, bring them in at night. You just want to take general precautions that you would do with any sort of wildlife species. So I'm not, I'm not worried about them. Yeah, I, I mean, I think, I think it's such a privilege to be able to be neighbors to so many amazing animals. Um, I grew up in a big city, so I didn't necessarily grow up with bobcats and you know coyotes howling at night and I just love opening my windows at night and hearing the animals that are right outside and, and just being respectful that they don't have a nice warm house to go into at night and that's when they go out and do their shopping and <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah I mean they were here first so yeah. you have to it's, it's nice to be respectful to your neighbors human and wildlife Amy, can you tell us a little bit about what your work, how your work has impacted, or maybe you got into this because you were an environmentalist in the first place, but how, how your work has either changed your views on land conservation or what your, basically what your, your, um, your land conservation views are? Yeah, so I've always been interested in nature. I got into this when I went to college, I I knew I liked animals, but I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I just knew I want to do something with animals. Um, and I honestly just kind of fell into wildlife biology by, um, I met a professor who ended up being my graduate advisor, and like, talking about how he brings students on international research trips. And I was just like, holy cow, that sounds like the coolest thing ever. Find me up. So that's, like, I decided that day, I'm doing wildlife biology. And the more I learned, the more time I spent outside, I just grew a larger appreciation for everything. And more recently, like, I've gotten really into plants. I was never a, a big plant person, but now that I spent all of my time outside, I got really into learning more about native plants and how I can incorporate that into my, my own house, my own yard, and share it with my neighbors. So... Yeah, just being in this field, I, I feel like I'm always learning something, whether it's about wildlife or plants or, you know, getting to explore new parts of the state. I didn't grow up in Rhode Island, but I feel like I've seen way more of Rhode Island than people who've lived here their whole lives. There's just so many cool properties through different land trusts, nature conservancy, Audubon, that there's so much to explore, and I just grew more appreciative of the time I get to spend outside and the stuff I get to learn about. Yeah, like at the Crandall Nature Preserve, managed by the Westerly Land Trust. <laughs> that is just the coolest property. I have such a love for Crandall. Yeah. Um, so we, we were doing trapping and trail camera work out there, and, you know, the, the trail that leads out to that observation platform, it's just a wildlife highway. It's amazing. The amount of animals that we see on the trail camera, there's just I had so much fun every day, especially in the winter, getting out there before anybody else has been out. And if there was a fresh snow, I'm like, oh, how many cool footprints am I going to see? And even a scat. It's just such an amazing wildlife highway there. That is awesome. Amy, I'd love to do a tour of Crandall with you, the leader. <laughs> <laughs> or any of these properties in, in Rhode Island. And, and yeah. you'd, you'd be able to show me some really cool stuff. Yeah, I mean, I, I love all these new places and you know I kind of feel bad some of the times because I just 
I go out to my survey site, and then I go back to my car, and I don't get to explore the whole property, but a lot of times I'm like, oh, well, now I know where I can go hiking this weekend, because I just found this whole new property. Nice. Good. So going along with that, what are some of your favorite things about your work? And on the flip side, what are the challenges that you face? Um, my favorite things are getting, getting outside. I was not built to just sit in front of a computer all day. Sometimes it's good, you know, when it's degrees out, I prefer to be in front of my computer. But most of the days, I, I prefer being outside and active and, and exploring the state and doing all that stuff. So that's, that's my favorite part. It's just what I get to do. And when I tell people what my job is, they're like, oh my god, that sounds so cool. And it is. I'm super fortunate to have this position and to get to do what I do. It is challenging, though. Like I said, having to work, you know, rain, snow, sleep, 10 degree weather. That's, that's, I'm not, having lived in New England my whole life, I'm still not used to the cold. I, you know, having been in the woods all day today, I can tell you I'm wearing three pairs of pants. <laughs> so, I'm not exactly built for the cold, but I appreciate it. And then just the challenges of, like, the logistics working with wildlife, you know, they, they, you have to think on your feet a lot and, and adapt. You know, you can go out there with one plan. And, you know, the fisher and the bobcat has a totally different plan, particularly with the bobcat when you're trying to trap them on mountains. Like, every day it was trying to figure out, like, oh, it came to the trap, but it didn't go in. Why didn't it go in? You have to just, you know, change your plan minute by minute. It keeps you on your toes, that's for sure. Working with animals would do that to you. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> Well, Amy, is there anything that you want to plug for yourself? Do you have social media or a website as part of your research associate position? I don't. I am not a technologically savvy person. Um, I will tell you, I'll, I'll send you the uh, website. So my research colleague, Lakin, who's running the Fisher Project, she has a great website and a great, great uh, Twitter handle where she's posting all the updates for this new project that she's running. So I can send you the details on that and you can plug it in because I don't, I don't know it off the top of my head, but I know that she's posting really great pictures and videos of some of this stuff. Great. I'll put it in the show notes. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you, Amy. Yeah, thank you. This was fun. Yeah, you need to go get warm now. For the next 60 seconds, enjoy this nature mindfulness activity with sounds from an afternoon at Crandall Preserve. So we're back for the conservation tip at the end of the episode. And I thought a perfect one to bring up would be about native species. And that's simply to plant native species in your yard if you're able to. We kind of talked about that, actually. You said weeds are nothing but a plant out of place, which I love. So things like not treating your yard with a lot of chemicals is definitely a good environmental action. Do you have anything else to add on on that? Well, just that one of the things that you don't think about, you know, when I'm um, growing the plants that I use for my research in the greenhouse, a lot of times I'll get some pest problems on them. And if I put them outside during the summer, they have fewer pest problems. And part of that is because there's natural enemies out there that feed on them. So if you are in your yard, you know, using um, pesticides, you're not allowing the natural enemies, you know, the natural um, food web to sort of take care of things. So that's really a good thing. A good thing to do. And my major professor from Delaware is Doug Tallamy. 
and he actually has a couple of books out that are really fun reading that are about how when you have native plants in your yard, you are supporting native insects and the native insects support native birds. And so, you know, I think a lot of people are, have really taken to that message that's just a different, kind of a different way of looking at it. That's so interesting. I'm, I'm currently dealing with a fungus gnat issue with my indoor spider plants. <laughs> Middle of the winter right now, so I can't put them outside. But <laughs> <laughs> No, unfortunately. Yeah, all good points, definitely. Great. Well, thanks again, Lisa. Well, thank you. Lisa. Sure. Nice thank to you. talk to you. You too. I hope you uh, enjoy the snow. Yes, it is very pretty out my window now. Good, good. (laughs) We we need some snow, so it's good to finally get it. All right, well, be safe out there. Thank you, you too. Thanks so much, Lisa. We'll talk to you later. Take care. All right, bye. 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 So again, thanks for being here, Amy. One thing I wanted to talk about real quick is the Western Land Trust Fun Fact, which is about Crandall Swamp this episode. And that's that our... The Westerly Land Trust's trail at Crandall is, wheel- is wheelchair accessible. There's a handicapped parking spot. The hiking part is very flat and straight. And I just, I like that because it ensures access for nature to everyone. And that's a great overlook there, right? It's beautiful. Yeah. 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 That's for sure. That is one of my favorite properties. Going there in the springtime when the frogs start coming out and singing the peepers, it's just magical, especially after a long winter. And then you can overlook the, there's all sorts of beaver activity there too, and so it's really cool to see. I know, I know the, the, the fellas that do the, the maintenance of those culverts are not happy with all the time. <laughs> but it's really cool to see like all the stuff that they're cutting down and building was totally incredible. And I saw an otter there in the water one. Otters are one of my favorite animals. That was just the best day ever. Awesome. That is so cool. Big fan of Crandall. Good. Good, good. Well, come back anytime. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, it's been wonderful talking with you today, Amy, and thank you so much for sharing your research with us and your projects about all the awesome animals uh, in Rhode Island. Yeah, of course. It was super fun. And hopefully we'll be sharing some more data with our Fisher project. That'd be great. Thank you. I'll let you go get warm. Yeah, all right. Thank you. Thanks for adapting with me. Yeah, no problem. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you to our guests, Amy Mayer and Dr. Lisa Tewksbury. And thank you for tuning in to Voices of the Land. And be sure to follow the Westerly Land Trust on Facebook and Instagram. Check out our website at westerlylandtrust.org for more information on events and activities. Download our Trails app for trail maps and information about our preserves. If you want to support our cause, you can donate to the Westerly Land Trust or become a Land Trust member through our website. And tune in again next month! Thank you for listening to Voices of the Land. Your continued support helps us preserve and podcast the places you cherish. Feel free to rate and subscribe to this podcast to help others find it. And together, we can help everyone feel more connected to our natural world.